Welcome to Football Uncovered by Sport. This is the show where we peel back the layers and some of the most weird and wonderful stories in the inner workings of football. This series, we take an entertaining look at some of the most bizarre and unbelievable tales in football ownership history. This is insight of football ownership you will never have heard before. My name is Will Brazier and each episode I'll be joined by Richard Johnson and the man in the know, sporting intelligencer's Nick Harris. Nick, how are you? You're not with us today, but you're up in Scotland, aren't you? I am. I'm with you very much in spirit, though, and looking forward to this. I wish you were here because uh, you keep me away from Richard Johnson. How are you, Rich? Yeah, good. Thanks, Will. Um, You, of course, are a Blackburn fan, and that's who we're going to be looking into today, isn't it? I am. Yeah, Blackburn fan. Before you say anything, season ticket holder for a long time, through the good and the bad days. Nick, let me give you some intel on that. He did say through the good and the bad days. That's not true. And he said season ticket holder. And let me tell you, that was complimentary as well. (laughs) Really? That's yeah. very poor, very poor. Well, when we get into some of these issues, Rich could have been the cause of some of them as well with these complimentary tickets. Yeah, I mean, you know, the finances of the club over the years have been pretty bad. I mean, tell me about the title winning season, Rich. What do you remember? Did they stream the games live to kindergarten? <laughs> Listen, I was there in my glory days of supporting Blackburn, which was 2002, winning the Worthington Cup. It's a memory I'll never forget. Before we get into it, if you are listening, give us a rating and a review. And why not recommend it to a friend? And follow us on Sport and follow Sporting Intel for Nick Harris. Let's get into it, Rich. We're looking at a story of crafty middlemen, millions of pounds of agents' fees, relegation, promotion, Ronaldinho, Raul, maybe even Beckham, and some of the richest people in India. This is the story of my beloved Blackpin Rovers and the Venkis' ownership, which is absolutely fascinating. Nick, before we come to you, because you're blessed with a wealth of insight and knowledge on this, Will, what's your outside view on Venkis? My view on the Venkis, the chicken... Steve Keane and Championship and League One football. Beautifully summed up. Join us next week. For- yeah, that's all you need to know. <laughs> well, I think, Nick, it's fair to say the Venkis, when they first came to England and to Blackburn, they were treated quite torridly to an extent. But tell us a little bit about the Venkis, the makeup of the family and ultimately how they came to actually own Blackburn? Well, I mean, it's 10 years ago. I mean, that's another peg for doing this particular episode. We're talking about 10 years ago that this takeover happened and it was very, very strange. I mean, you've got Blackburn Rovers, one of only a few clubs at that point who'd won the Premier League title with Jack Walker's Millions and Alan Shearer. So still a big, stable club, Premier League, huge global audience. So the fact that a poultry conglomerate from India would come in and buy the club was just sort of verging on the ridiculous. I mean, we are talking about crazy ownership capers and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think one thing that will emerge in this very strange tale is that Venkis were not sort of villainous oddballs. They had the heart in the right place, is what I'm saying. And not manipulated into buying the club, but the way that deal was set up was something that maybe not a lot of people are aware of. So how it came to pass is the Jack Walker Trust had been running the club, putting in a couple of million a year. It washed its own face. It was stable. It was well run under the chairman, John Williams, very respected. The Jack Walker Trust thought it was time to get some fresh blood, fresh investment and take it back to where it had been 
when Jack Walker managed to, to win the Premier League title. So the Jack Walker Trust decided to try and find an investor and an owner. And they tasked a few people with going out and finding investment. And one of those was a football agent called Jerome Anderson. At the same time, Venkis, who enjoyed sport locally in India, they sponsored a local tennis tournament in Pune in India, and they put a bit of money into local cricket. They were looking for a bigger sporting investment, but they had no ambitions to be in the Premier League. They didn't really know anything about Premier League or English football. But they did have contacts with a marketing agency called Kentaro, who was a Swiss-based marketing and sports rights agency. And Kentaro also had links to the same Jerome Anderson. So Jerome Anderson actually then introduced Venkis to the idea that they might want to buy a football club, a Premier League football club. And he said, if you become a Premier League football club, your name will soon be known all over the world. He didn't, he didn't sort of impress upon them that that might not be for the right reasons. But he basically engineered the deal. So they bought Blackburn Rovers, including debt and everything, for low tens of millions of pounds. And suddenly they're the owners of a Premier League football club. And they do not have a clue what's coming or what they're doing, really, because they are, A, quite naive and be very, very badly advised. And also unknown to most people, on the day the takeover was completed, the running of the football club actually was taken over by Kentaro. There was a contract between Venkis and Kentaro for Kentaro to run the football club. So suddenly the board, John Williams, the manager, Sam Allardyce, all the people who'd been running the football club were unknown to all of us, no longer in control of the football club. It was being run by Kentaro, and specifically on a day-to-day basis by... Jerome Anderson. So is this right? Kentaro are a third party and they appointed them to, to yeah. essentially oversee what was going on. Absolutely. That, that's crazy. We didn't discover this until a long time afterwards. At the time, we thought that there was this matriarchal sister, Mrs. Desai, and her brothers, Venki, Venkatesh, Venki, and Balaji. One of his side hustles was running a Bollywood film studio. Suddenly, the three of them who ran this massive poultry conglomerate that basically controlled the whole of the Indian chicken industry and was expanding into South America and across Asia, are suddenly in charge of a Premier League football club. I mean, it's just bizarre. Just to wind the clock back further as well, because you always hear about football clubs and specifically like chairman and, and boards not really getting on with football agents. Why was Jerome Anderson not have the shine of the board and why was he tasked as a football agent to go and find that investment? Well, because Jerome obviously had lots of contacts all around the world because he ran an agency called SEM. So he had lots of contacts. I mean, Jerome Anderson did lots of business with Arsenal and uh, and David Dean. He was heavily involved during that infamous summer when Faxin Shinawatra owned Manchester City and the manager was Sven-Joran Eriksson and they spent right. God knows how much money. So Jerome was involved in all that. So he, Jerome, as many sort of high-profile football agents are. I think he was involved with Bergkamp and Matt Latisse and various, you know, big names. So he had contacts in football and he knew people. So it wasn't unreasonable for the Jack Walker Trust to say to Jerome, look, you know lots of people around the world. If you can find us an investor, then obviously you'll get a commission on that deal. He wasn't the only person. They obviously asked lots of different people to see if they could find an investor. But it just happened that Jerome, unknowns to the Jack Walker Trust, also already sort of had a client in mind. And he sort of did the deal. And shock horror, who ends up with a contract to run Blackburn, kicking in the day the deal's done? Kentaro. And who works for Kentaro and with Kentaro? Jerome Anderson. And what's the first sort of meaningful thing that Kentaro and Jerome do? They sack Sam Allardyce. 
and a point. Steve Keane, that superstar, legendary, multi- <laughs> multiple Champions League winning manager. I mean, no, that it's, it's what we were all we were all asking for, really. You know, as Blackburn fans, obviously at the time. Yeah. Before we jump into that, actually, you sort of touched on this before, Nick, in terms of the the Venkies being a little bit naive. There's a couple of uh, statements here that they've made, which I wanted to almost qualify with you to to get your thoughts on. Is it true that they didn't? know that you could get relegated or is that just a bit of a myth uh, the honest answer now is i don't know because <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll come to it but after all the initial coverage i basically went to india and spent time in india and with the venkis and around their businesses and in their house and so when i met them in january 2011 mrs desai on that meeting has certainly done her homework on the Blackburn squad. She knew who the players were. She'd obviously done her own due diligence. So she knew the sort of the ages and the nationalities of the players. She knew what positions they played at and she knew what they were paid. So she knew the basic business stuff. She also talked with sort of some ambition and sort of knowledge about a few Brazilian who they were thinking they might target as signings. So she came across as somebody who was on top of her brief. But now on reflection, I kind of think, you know, a lot of that was just very simple. She'd done due diligence on the situation at the time without really understanding football. And so the idea that they didn't know about relegation, I honestly don't know. But I think it's plausible they might not have known. They certainly wouldn't have known the consequences. And by the same token... You know, I, I think that there was a suggestion at one point that they that they equated the championship with the Champions League so that it was always their ambition to get into the championship, which they did obviously quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. That's what I've been holding on to as a Birmingham City fan for the last 11 years anyway. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe it was someone who said, listen, with Sam Ardash, you can't get relegated. It's yeah. not possible. You, know, you have the man in charge. And we do say the championship is the best league in the world. That so is. Maybe it that's is. Were... It's very competitive. It's best best place to play football. They were naive and they're badly advised, but they're not stupid. They weren't stupid. I mean, they've got this massive poultry conglomerate, everything from hatcheries to chicken rearing to a chain of restaurants called Venkis Express, which is a sort of KFC Indian style. Did you eat at a Venkis Express? I did, yeah. I mean, I had this weird week where I basically got hold of the number of the older brother Venki and I rang him up and I said, look, you're getting a lot of bad coverage in England. Some of it is frankly borderline racist, you know, stupid, ignorant chicken farmers. What the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I said, um, I'm f- fascinated to know what you're doing. And if you you know, will host me and show me what you're doing. I'll come back and I'll just write what I find about you, your businesses and what your ambitions are. So I went out to uh, India and they had a schedule for me for every day for a week. So like one day I was at a grain silo and the next day I was at a chicken hatchery and I was sort of thinking, when can, we talk, when can we talk about transfers? And Where did the chicken compare to the Colonel's uh, secret spices uh, from KFC? For me, it was a bit fatty um, and it was a bit, yeah, it was just a bit too greasy. But I mean, I think that was just local taste, but it wasn't yeah, for me. I mean, I, prefer, I mean, I don't want to diverge too much, but I preferred the, uh, the, the old school um, KFC Certainly from my childhood, which was a much sort of drier and uh, spicier blend. <laughs> it's good we're covering all the key points. Um, of know, the chicken industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're absolutely, they're not stupid people. They're very, yeah. very wealthy people. And uh, I mean, and this was another thing. They sort of let me look at, at different books and ledgers because we were trying to ascertain at this point how wealthy they were because they owned, I think it was 26 companies within their conglomerate just within India. Only one of them is publicly listed. And so a lot of people made the assumption that because that one publicly listed company had a turnover of about £120 million a year, that that was about the size of their wealth. But the the, the reality is they had 25 companies that 
didn't have to declare publicly because they're privately owned companies what they were earning. And I, yeah. I established that in actual fact, their assets, their turnover, whatever, they're worth about two billion quid. So, nice. so they, were, they were good for the money. And there were a lot of misinformation about them. And there still is to this day. But of course, yep. they're still here 10 years later. They haven't ever given up on the club. That's... Well, that's that's the thing. I think even in interviews that I read that they did with you, they seem really, you know, honest and, you know, actually true in their intentions. And, you, you know, they, they are still pumping money into the club. Like they're keeping Blackburn afloat, really. Yeah. Um, that's saying we were quite stably run before. And I think decisions like Sam Allardyce that we'll come on to probably didn't help. I think I read, uh, and I th- think this was an interview that, that Mr. decided with you, that her aim was that in sort of four or five years, we'd be between fifth and seventh in, in the league. Yeah. Which, you know, I think at the time, even with Blackburn fans, and I remember feeling like this when they were talking about what well, we want to get into Champions League and Europe and sign all these players. It sounds funny saying this, but we didn't want that. We were happy to be in the Premier League. I think we'd finished 10th the, the season before they came in. Um, we were about 6th as well the year before that. But as an owner, like you even see it with Golden Sullivan. No, you're not going to come in and go, we're coming in and we're going to stay where we are. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> but but listen, it's a familiar tale. The bigger you, you state your ambitions, the harder you're going to fall when it all goes wrong. I mean, Tony Fernandez at QPR, same story. You know, we're going into the Champions yeah. League. Golden Sullivan at West Ham, we're going to be in in the top four. These stories, everyone says they're going to turn the club into Champions League contenders and whatever. Venkis had been told that this was a feasible ambition. You know, they knew that Blackburn were at that point, what, one of three or four clubs who'd even won the Premier League. But they were naive. I'm looking forward to this uh, dystopian future where it's Blackburn, Birmingham, West Ham and QPR in the Champions League spot. Yeah, exactly. Parallel universe. So we, we, we touched on it earlier, but I think was it December? Allardyce is sacked. Yeah. Steve Keane brought no, in. November, December, early, early. Yeah. yeah. What went on there? I think we're going to, particularly in these early years of the takeover, Jerome Anderson's going to pop up a lot because he was sort of, even watched an interview did with Sky where they even described him as a shadowy puppet master. How did that happen? Again, as a Blackburn fan, that was just like, oh my God, what is going on? Why is Aldice gone? And why is Keane in? You know who else was thinking that? John Williams, the bloke who was supposed to be running the football club. There you go. So John Williams, the CEO, was he just totally in the dark? He was also thinking, what the hell's going on? Why has Sam Allardyce been sacked? What's happening with our transfer policy? In fact, this, this again emerged later, but around that time, John Williams wrote to the FA and asked them the same question. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, dear FA, what the hell's going on at the club that I'm supposed to be running and who's running it? And the FA sort of started an investigation. Again, we found out this much later. Then Keane came in. Jerome Anderson is Keane's agent. Yes. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Just about to go, why the hell Steve Keane? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, Steve Keane is a client of SEM owned by Jerome Anderson who put him into the post as Blackburn Rovers manager with approximately no day's experience in his life as first team football manager anywhere. And is that the sort of thing, like even drawing from my experiences with Birmingham, like we've had with with different uh, owners, like where they put a manager in where they almost think they can sort of control him? And uh, You could say that because obviously Steve Keane will have access to Jerome Anderson's advice, shall we say, on uh, and maybe, um, you know, his advice on what players to buy. And obviously if Jerome's doing deals to bring players in and, his client is the manager of that football club. You could see how that might be easier for him. Yeah. Mad. So Keane takes charge, which ultimately, you know, again, was just baffling to, to Blackburn fans. And then we started getting linked with Ronaldinho, 
Beckham, even like Raul, you know, what was going on with the, our transfer policy at that time? Well, Raul came a bit later. Raul was summer of 11. But back at the beginning of 2011, there were all these names which were being linked. I mean, as I said, when I went to Pune in January 11, Mrs Desai was talking about um, Brazilian players. Uh, I don't think she had any realistic expectations of signing Ronaldinho, although his name got into the press because it was rumoured that she was looking at Brazilians and they put two and two together. And the reason that would be attractive to Venkis at that time was because they were wanting to expand their chicken business into Brazil. I mean, there was some strategic thinking in them buying the football club because, you know, it, it is just obvious. As soon as you buy a Premier League football club, you are known around the world. You you become globally well-known as a business person if you buy a Premier League football club. And that is what happened. But what didn't happen is they didn't get the Brazilian players. And in actual fact, Jerome Anderson sort of took control of the transfer business in that January transfer window and signed a couple of, of players. One of them was um, from Barcelona B, cost uh, €400,000, I think. And his agent, who was a friend and business partner of Jerome Anderson, got an agent's fee for that €400,000 transfer of £1.65 million, which seems completely, completely legit to me. <laughs> what? That, I've that played a lot of football crazy. manager, Nick, and I've had the wall pull over my eyes a few times, but <laughs> that's mental. And so he signed for four hundred grand, but we paid the agent £1.6 million. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think I think that probably was, a, you know, I mean, he's coming from Barcelona B. Barcelona B have produced some fine players. I mean, Lionel Messi used to play for Barcelona B, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so, I mean, you've got to look on the bright side. I mean, Jerome said this <laughs> this fella was, uh, Ruben Rachina, I think his name was. Yeah. And, and if, if Jerome said he was going to be a big star, you know, Jerome's a seasoned agent. I mean, why why else? What other logical reason would there be for paying that 1.65 million? That probably shows the trust and the faith that almost like was instilled in him just to almost call a lot of the shots in the club. Yeah, I mean, this contract, which again, much later, I got a copy of the contract for Kentaro to to basically run the club during this first year. It gave Kentaro the right to sign players, to hire and fire staff, to make commercial agreements, to sign shirt sponsors, to basically run the club from top to bottom. There was another signing that January as well, a Mauro Formica from Argentina. That was a bit strange because when Blackburn sort of put the deal to the FA to go through FA clearance, the FA were not happy with it and in fact rejected it because uh, sources told me at the time there was a strange third party ownership element to it that by this point was not allowed. So... We're not quite sure who exactly owned that player, but there's a suggestion that maybe a company somewhere in the Caribbean had an interest in him and that ultimately, you know, they would own his economic rights. But as I said, that wasn't allowed. So the deal had to be restructured. I'm not sure why anyone would want to own a third party player and then maybe sell them for massive profit later on for personal enrichment. I mean, obviously, it's something that happened with Tevez and Macarano back in the day that led to all sorts of legal action and a fine, but but that's by the by. With that deal, it had to be restructured, so I think it, his entire ownership had to be bought by uh, Newell's Old Boys, and then Blackburn bought him from Newell's Old Boys. So the headlines were Rovers to sign Beckham and Ronaldinho. The reality was Rovers signed Ruben Rachina and Mauro Formica. With Formica, I think he was about four million. Yeah, th- uh, three and a half. I don't know, because it does seem like such a large amount of money, considering we bought Yakubu around that time as well for like 
you know, a couple of mil yeah. or something. And he was, he was a proven Premier League goal scorer. He though. was, yeah. I do wonder whether that fee for Formica, maybe that was elevated because of the fact that there was all this shady business going on yeah. behind the scenes. I mean, in terms of Jerome's involvement, uh, you mentioned earlier you gave a Sky interview later when it all went wrong to sort of defend his role in the whole thing. And in that interview, he described how he, he actually said he literally slept at the training ground and he worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week during that window for the good of Blackburn Rovers to get all these massive and promising <laughs> deals across the line. And he, you know, that was his defence of, of what he'd done. But again, we found out a lot of this stuff later, but behind the scenes, John Williams was at the end of his tether and about to resign. The FA were investigating the club for potential third-party ownership issues. Steve Keane, an untried and tested manager, was in charge of a Premier League football club. Uh, you know, it is chaos. And this is this is all going on January 2011, which is when I flew out to Pune. And just on that, regarding the Venkis, are they even seeing like, I don't know how transfers happen, but like the sheets where Machine is coming through with a transfer deal for 400k and then they're scrolling down, agent fee... 1.4, 1.6 million. Is that not alarm bells ringing for them? Well, they're ultimately signing off, as in sanctioning the money, the yeah. expenditure. But exactly what they are being told and what they're seeing in terms of paperwork, I don't know. Legally speaking, Kentaro had the right to run the football club and make purchases. So if Jerome Anderson was telling Benkeys, we're going to spend £6 million of your money this window on this, and this is the fees and this is the money, can you just transfer the funds or make the funds available? They were just making the funds available. It wasn't much longer. I think it was spring 2011. They started to sort of ask some questions, and um, I believe they had an independent auditor in to, to come and look and sort of say... Can you look at our books and just see, is this normal? Because they didn't know what was normal. And the independent auditor said, uh, no, it's not. Because <laughs> that's only like six months after they've taken over. Yeah. yeah. So at that point, basically, they thought, well, this is very strange. This shouldn't be happening. At that point, they sort of said to Jerome, they sort of said, OK, well, thanks for all your help, but, you know, we'll take it from here. And he was sort of effectively at that point for a while made persona non grata. But... Also by this point, which is spring, late spring 2011, they no longer trust anybody that they've been working with because they feel that maybe they've been misled in some ways. So there you have Mrs. Desai and her brothers trying to run Blackburn remotely from India without having any idea what to do. I think you're right though. It's probably like misled, taken advantage of, you know, they've been so trusting and, and potentially naive because football, unfortunately, and as, and as you know, Nick, through your work, it's a greedy game, isn't it? There's been shady characters in it for years and years and years. Yeah. And it seems like Blackburn were, were really a victim of that in those first six months. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have to keep stressing it's naivety. But yeah, I mean, when there's that amount of money at stake, you know, a lot of Premier League club owners then and certainly now are are billionaires, millionaires. There's hundreds of millions of pounds of TV money at stake every season. There's, There's, you know, where you find lots of money, you will find people who want to part of that money, however they can get it. So there's all sorts of sort of dodgy stuff been going on for a long time in football and and you could argue that was the case here but they didn't discover it until sort of it was too late and when they did discover it their confidence in in anyone helping them was gone and they ended up sort of turning to people who they sort of knew personally i.e people just friends and family and people who worked in their business in India who didn't also necessarily know anything about football and and because I was somebody they knew in England albeit just a sports journalist 
they would sort of ask me for advice on stuff. And I would constantly say to them, I would say, look, I'm not, you know, I don't run football clubs. I'm not a chief executive. I don't, I'm not a chief financial officer. I, I offered to introduce them to a number of prominent chief executives and football people who'd worked at big clubs. I'm talking about former chief executives at Liverpool and Aston Villa and stuff. And, and not, not because they were going to hire those people to run Blackburn, but just to say, look, speak to this person, speak to this person. So I introduced them to a headhunter in London who works in the football industry. And, and through that route, they managed to get themselves a new chief financial officer. And I said, really, you need a football manager who knows what he's doing, not Steve Keane. But of course, by this point, they'd sort of made him unsackable by telling me, actually, when I was in India, that Steve Keane was unsackable, which is was the back page of uh, the paper that Sunday. And, and so I think probably... Partly it was them being on a bound, having told me that he was unsackable, that they didn't sack him for so long. So that's partly my fault that, you know, they said that to me and I reported it. You know, it was chaos. And what was this? So 2011, I mean, they survived that season, that first season. They did stay in the Premier League. And so obviously they set about trying to do their own transfer business for the 2011-12 season, which is where Raul came in. Yeah, tell us about Raul, because this is a... Brilliant story. Well, she phoned me up one day and she said, Nick, there's a Spanish football player called Raul. I said, oh, I've heard of him, actually. Um, (laughs) He he used to play for Real Madrid and I think he might have won the World Cup or the Champions League a number of times. Yeah, I think I've heard of him. And she said, well, um, she's playing for a German club now, Schalke. I said, okay. And she said, well, you know, we've been approached and we think we can get him from Schalke perhaps for nothing and certainly for a small fee. What do you think about that? And I said, well, from what I've seen and read, he's not happy at Schalke because he's got a manager there, a guy called Ralph Rangnick, who's a really highly respected, experienced, seasoned German manager. She said, he's Ralph Rangnick. Ralph apparently, you know, I, I said, he doesn't rate him. He doesn't think he's high profile enough. So I said, if Ralph doesn't think that Ralph Rangnick is high profile enough, then with greatest respect, Mr. Sy, I don't <laughs> think he's going to think that Steve Keane is the man to take his career to another level at the age of 34. I said, there's also the fact that he's 34. And she said, well, we won't have to pay a fee for him and he only wants £5 million a year in wages. I said, £5 million for a 34-year-old who probably won't come anyway. So I said, look, if you want a striker, you're looking for a striker. Around at the same time, this is 2011, uh, late spring, early summer 2011, I knew the owner at Reading and I knew Jeremy Peace, who was the chief executive and owner at West Brom. And there was some suggestion that Shane Long, who I think then was 24, very prolific striker, was going to potentially move from uh, Reading to West Brom. And the deal hadn't been done, but they were talking about a price tag of four to five million pounds. So I just said to Mrs. Desai, I said, look, this shouldn't be me doing this, by the way. You should have a manager. You should have a manager making signings or a chief executive, not a football journalist. But I said, look, if you want some advice, I wouldn't bother with Raoul. I'd suggest that you make an inquiry or get somebody to look into Shane Long. 24 years old, prolific. His wages, you know, you probably on a million quid or something at Reading, you know, long contracts, proven goal scoring in English football, thanked me very much. I thought, you know, finally, maybe they're going to listen. Two days later, I found out she offered Raoul a contract and he said, <laughs> no thanks. And then they hadn't done anything about Shane Long. And at that point, you think, well, there's only so much you can do. You know, I didn't want to be giving advice to sort of the owner of a football club. It's just they felt that they couldn't really trust anybody. 
and I was saying, you know, you need to you need to find executives who who will run the club like it was run before John Williams resigned and and get people in. So we missed out on Shane Long. That that seems like a shame. He, he, I could see him doing a good job at the Rovers. So that's it. Like an Adam like Armstrong is now. Yeah, but Adam Armstrong scores. But yeah, they didn't. They didn't get Raúl, and they didn't get any big names. And I think at this point, the penny was starting to drop. You had Steve Keener's manager, and you hadn't got Raúl. But you were still in the Premier League. Again, to be fair to Venkies, I mean, they were still pretty engaged. They did come over and they would stay at the Lowry. Obviously, we all know the Lowry in Manchester. Yeah. And, and they had bought a massive retinue. So there'd be Venky and Balaji and Mrs. Desai. And they'd have, seriously, maybe 20 people with them, including bodyguards and chauffeurs, wow. and cooks and bellboys and whatever. And they would routinely take over a floor of the Lowry. And it cost them about wow. 40 grand a night. Um, <laughs> you know, they were coming over and they were doing this. And at a certain point during that summer, I said, look, you're coming over a lot. You're spending a lot of money. You know, have you not thought about buying someone? They said, oh, yeah. Do you know a, f- a footballer called Gary Neville? I said, yeah, I've heard of him. He said, oh, he said, we bought his house. So the next time I met them, they introduced me to their architect who they'd flown over from India to gold plate all the bathrooms in this house they'd bought from Gary Neville. And I'm not sure how many times they ever stayed in this house because they it was it was late that autumn 2011 they kind of stopped coming over so regularly i don't actually know the last time they were over as a family will yeah today support for football uncovered is brought to you by manscaped the best in below the belt male grooming and since we're talking balls let's literally talk balls yeah manscaped has been advertised everywhere in the uk for the past few months and honestly it's for good reason for those who don't know It's essentially a new innovation in male grooming, i.e. your ball sack. Yeah, I think for me, Rich, it's something that before was a bit of a chore, but now, you know, I put 15, 30 minutes in the calendar and I actually look forward to a bit of grooming down there. Well, exactly. Just pencil it in. Everyone benefits. They've totally redesigned the electric trimmer. They're onto their third generation. It's got a cutting edge ceramic blade, which reduces manscaping accidents. Hey, let's be honest. Lay it all out on the table. We've all been there, Mm -hmm. haven't we? Oh, yeah. Little... Little cuts, little snicks. accident. No one likes it. No one needs it. With Manscapes, it's all changed. You know what you want, Rich. You want confidence when you're going down there, especially with a lawnmower. Uh, third generation. You get in there, you feel confident. Um, you know, maybe do a bit of topiary down there. Put yourself a peacock. Let's go over a few of the finer details because it is genuinely a great, great product, and it's worth uh, getting if you go to Manscaped.com. It's got a long battery life, up to 90 minutes long. You won't need to recharge all the time. It's water resistant. You can groom in the shower. It's got an LED light for precision trimming, just in case you know it's a little bit dark down there. Which, let's face it, it could be after all these years of not manscaping. And it's got a handy little charging stand. Just pop it in there, bang, ready for next time. Lovely stuff. If you head to manscaped.com and use the code UNCOVERED, because the podcast is called Football Uncovered, Mm -hmm. use the code UNCOVERED, you'll get a 20% discount just for listening to the podcast. So I can't recommend it enough. Honestly, it's a great product. Will, you're a convert. I'm a convert and actively look forward to doing it now. Yeah. Just get that lawnmower out, attack it, attack the sack. But attack with confidence, precision, and you just know you're going to have a good time. Yeah, absolutely. So again... Thanks so much for Manscaped for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you for listening. And to help us support the podcast, you could head to manscaped.com and get exclusively 20% off just using the code UNCOVERED. You going to do that? Yes. Well, you've already got one. I'm going to tell my friends. Let's move on. They introduced a revolutionary 
youth transfer policy, scouting policy, yeah. didn't they, in 2011, <laughs> which you again got to got to grips with. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think Mrs. Desai at this point felt that she could make a lot of the decisions herself, albeit remotely. And so she came up with a kind of revolutionary plan that they would buy young, promising players from some of the best clubs in, say, France and Germany, and then they would develop the talent so they'd spot players before anyone else had. No one had ever thought of this, of course, before buying <laughs> buying young players. And there was one of her employees from India. She brought over to Europe and asked him to literally go to clubs in France, like actually a knock on their doors and make offers for their players, right? Because they they, <laughs> they were so untrusting now of agents and middlemen and stuff that they were that they were you know trying to do deals literally themselves by sending people to Lyon or. Nice or so, whatever. So it's not a, it's not a scout. It's just someone from their Venki's office. Yeah, at was, one of the businesses. It was somebody who was previously in charge of uh, one of the uh, grain silo wings of the <laughs> the business. I don't want to be sort of derisive about this because the way they worked and the way they ran their businesses is if they had mm. people that they trusted, you yeah. could get promoted very very quickly within the Venki's organisations. So if you were young, bright graduate 21 and you work really hard within a couple of years you could be sort of heading up a big part of their business and so if they trusted you and liked you you could you could go places so they had this guy who was interested in football this guy and they sent him and he was in his 20s i think and they sent him over and said you know i've got this plan go and find these these uh, players but also he was tasked with meeting some agents in france and again he came back to england at one point having been on this trip where he'd surprisingly failed to buy any players but one of the agents that he'd met had, had, had given him the cvs of a bunch of players that this agent had in his stable they were basically all fictionalized i mean most of these players according to this dodgy agent had spent time in barcelona's youth team they'd played for bayern munich and i just even googling or Wikipediaing these players would prove that this stuff was untrue. And yet, for a very brief period of time, they were quite excited about the prospect of signing these <laughs> players, but people were still trying to rip them off. You know, it was just ridiculous. So this guy would literally turn up to, like, Leon and go, what, 2011, I want Janino to take free kicks at Blackburn. Yeah. And what, did the Venkis think they'd get the Eurostar back together with... with yeah, and- that, he'd, that he'd be able to go to the training. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, if you've got cash, <laughs> or do you want to write a cheque? Um, <laughs> and then we'll get you on the Eurostar, you know, get to King's Cross, just walk up, the, walk up the Euston Road to uh, Euston. And then, and then you get the. I think it's the eleven thirty from Euston to change at Preston. That is, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it? look, the, I mean, I know we're talking about Blackbird here, but and it is an extreme example. But this kind of craziness around the way that football works and football transfers and agents and middlemen and people inserting themselves into deals is depressingly common. And 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 the way that the shambolically way run that so many clubs, including big clubs, are run it is just testament to what a ridiculous industry it is. And, and then from this method, were there ever any signings made? No, I mean, it was a like, right, we need to try something different. So I think Mr. Desai had been on transfermarket.com or Wikipedia and identified, <laughs> again, done some basic research and then said, right, well, he looks good and he's apparently good. So go and try and get him. And obviously they didn't. So no, it, it didn't work. I mean, they were, they were at this point, they've had people from India in the club trying to run it day to day. They didn't take my advice in terms of getting a more experienced 
chief executive, they actually did their own interview process at that point and hired a guy called Paul Hunt to sort of run the club around this time. And Paul was a nice guy, but he didn't have a big track record as a football administrator when they hired him. But they ran their own recruitment process, i.e. they... They, I think they might have advertised or something and a bunch of people applied for the job and they liked him because he was a nice guy. That didn't work out very well for, for any of them, including Paul Hunt later. But we'll maybe come on to that later. Towards the end of the 10-11 um, season. So it's Sunday the 22nd of May 2011 and um, I think Wolves needed some kind of, potentially were going to need a result to stay up. And it's Sunday morning and I get a phone call from Venki, that's the older brother, saying... Nick, we need some help today. I said, well, there's not a lot I can do, Venki. He said, no, no, that's not what I mean. He said, do you know where there's a temple near Molyneux? So I Googled and I found a temple somewhere in the West Midlands en route from Malmaison or whatever. So he went to the temple before the match to sort of pray for divine help. And uh, the result that day was Wolves 2, Blackburn 3. Wow. Wow. There you go. So yeah, I mean, if if your transfer policy is not working out, then find a temple. It was it was a crazy it was a crazy crazy year, and it, it it's ten years on now. It seems strange to to think how big a story Blackburn Rovers was at that point, but it was yeah. massive. It was massive. It was yeah. I mean, because that's the thing now. You you know you say that you're a Blackburn fan, and people and often the first response is, "Which division are they in again?" But you know, then it was obviously yeah, just like oh, you're in such like turmoil. There was obviously the you know that came a little bit after the the famous chicken on the pitch at Ewood Park incident wrapped in the that's Blackburn flag. That's what you're flag. most famous for. Now, yeah, the definitely. There was a real optimism in the family. You know, they bought Gary Neville's house. They gold plated the bathrooms. They, they were doing some summer business. They were hoping to open a branch of Venkis Express in London. And I said, it's quite expensive, central London. And they said, oh, yeah, it'd be something like, it was some ridiculous amount of millions of pounds for a, for a lease on a, a place. And I said, where, where are you thinking? They said, well, we need footfall. Footfall's king in retail. So we were thinking about Leicester Square. I mean, they seriously were investigating the, the possibility of opening a Venkis Express in Leicester Square. And obviously this didn't happen because things started going wrong. You know, as, as the 11-12 season unfolded and started going, it was clear they might be in some trouble and, and various <laughs> other bad things happened. And they, they sort of decided maybe to concentrate on their core business but there was a real optimism in the family that they'd survived and that they would make this work but obviously it didn't quite pan out like that there was also a, an incident that happened actually summer 2011 as well where steve Keane on the pre-season tour in, in hong kong um was filmed by a fan he was talking to these fans pissed up in a pub and he said that sam aldice was a fucking crook Sam Allardyce instructed his lawyers and they settled out of court. Yeah, that was another incident. I mean, the, the fans, there's obviously a moral argument about should you, because he was covertly, I don't know if he was covertly filmed, but certainly. Yeah, it was It was very It was very covert. He was having a conversation. He was having a conversation and someone, someone else was filming him. Yeah. So he probably, I don't know that it was covert because someone was obviously pointing a camera phone at him, but, but certainly I don't think he was aware that he was going to be filmed and then that someone was going to, Stick it on YouTube, which is obviously not not the most ethical behaviour from the fans that did it. Most Blackburn fans thought that Steve Keane was a bad appointment and shouldn't be there and shouldn't be doing it. And actually, Steve Keane got a lot of sympathy from supporters of other football clubs and actually from quite a large chunk of the media. They found it much easier to sort of lay the blame at Venkies and say that this was all Venkies' yep. wrongdoing rather than 
accept that Steve Keane, to a degree, had obviously been complicit in what had happened to Sam Allardyce in the first place. I mean, yeah, you know, I think he came across as a bit like arrogant, but also it seemed like he'd stabbed Allardyce in the back, which, you know, within this wider context of him being represented by Jerome Anderson, his influence within the club, and perhaps that engineering of his position obviously also comes to account for it potentially. A but if bit you're the well. Venkies and you're coming in and going, right, in the next three to four years, we're going to be fighting for the Champions League. And here's our new manager, Steve Keane. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, even, I know they're obviously, they're very naive, but surely alarm bells are ringing there. Like you said, Nick, with his track but, record. But again, we come back to the badly advice. They'd been told that Steve Keane yeah. was just, just like probably the most promising young coach in Europe. He just hadn't right. been given his break yet. I mean, Mr. Desai had done her research. She trusted, she trusted in Jerome and she trusted in Kentaro. And they, I'm sure to this day, would argue that, you know, Jerome, I had a number of conversations with Jerome and some of them weren't all full of expletives, but he always insisted that his, if he'd been left to get on with it, he would have made Blackburn into sort of the successful slick operation that they could have been. <laughs> But um, yeah. it didn't work out like that. So what also happened in terms of crisis at the club late in 2011 is that there was some sort of change in the legislation in India relating to currency exports in terms of how much money Indian businesses could uh, send overseas for business purposes. So it was reduced or the, a limit was put on it. At the same time... Blackburn's bank was concerned that the overdraft was uh, reaching its limit, and which is no problem because they knew that Venkis were good for the money. But they did say, look, as a, a gesture that, of goodwill, can you just make a payment of £10 million or something so that we can just see that the money's there? But this currency export thing meant that they couldn't get the money out and they were absolutely stumped. The bank went to the club and said, look, I'm sorry for your problems, but you know, you're going to go over the overdraft. And if it's not sorted out fairly quickly, you're not going to be able to pay your wage bill. Wow. So it was a, it was a real, it was a problem. And Venki phoned me that autumn to say, can you have a word with the bank manager? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, what the hell am I? And I, I said like, what can we do? You know, do you, what, what should we do? I said, I don't know, but you know, you need to get your chief executive, whatever. Anyway, it was another one of these where, okay, I'm now at a point where this is potentially quite a big story. You've got a Premier League football club that can't pay its wages. Again, that is an absolutely huge story, isn't it? I mean, we all yeah. know what would happen to Portsmouth, but if you've got a Premier League football club that can't pay its wages amidst rumours that Venkis aren't actually very rich at all and they're going to walk away and the whole thing's chaos and Steve King's manager, that's a big story. And they're saying, please don't write that story because we'll look incompetent and stupid. I said, well, okay, but... Rumours are doing the rounds in Blackburn. Other journalists will find out. It's probably much better that somebody writes the story in a way that explains that this isn't your incompetence. This is a, a real issue with banking and whatever. And mm. they said, no, don't write it, blah, blah, blah. And then I got wind that someone else was going to write the story and it was probably going to be slanted that incompetent Venkies, you know, are going to crash and burn. So I wrote the story anyway, which, you know, that's my job as a journalist is to write yeah. True, yeah. true stories, accurate, break stories. Of course, if you've got a good contact, a good source, you get on with somebody, you can bear in mind requests to do or not do certain things, but ultimately you have to do my job. So I wrote the story and they were really, really unhappy with it. So I did, That's your, your Venky's black card out the window there. Yeah, that no was, more trips that was me, me getting sent off. No more chicken, no more chicken dinners, no <laughs> more whatever. I mean, I did, I did stay in touch with them afterwards. I did speak to them again. I saw them at matches a couple of times after that, but they... 
I think from that point they felt that I then I too had sort of let them down. But well, you, I suppose that tied into like their trust issues with everyone else, didn't they? And even if you weren't, of doing course, anything of too course. Wrong. I mean, I don't think they particularly got that the story I wrote explained what the issue was. You know, yeah. that that there was a, a liquidity issue in terms of money transfers rather than them being potless. I mean, as we said earlier, they're still here ten years later. They've put tens and tens of millions of pounds, maybe more than a hundred million pounds into that club. I think they still believe that one day it will come right. So and that's testament to them ultimately that they have stuck around and supported the club, even though it hasn't been a particularly glorious decade. So that happened and the the only way that they ended up getting out of of that hole is remember Chris Samba? Yes, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say we sold him actually. Yeah, well you sold him. That that saved the club. I think they sold him to Anzi Makalala. I think that was probably February. They were literally a week or two away wow. from, from not being able to pay the wages. I'd written the story at the end of 11. It was going to be wow. February. They sold him. I think it was 10, 12, 12 million. Do you think Chris Samba knows he saved Blackburn Rovers? I think he does because I think some of the fans stayed in touch with him and I think he did realise that he did some interview with a fanzine or something later. I think he did realise that, that doing that deal gave them the money that allowed them to complete that season. But then obviously they completed it badly and they got relegated. Yeah. So, which is where we come to Paul Hunt. So in May 2012, I came into possession of a document which came from a confidential source, which was a letter that Paul Hunt, who'd been appointed as chief executive of Rovers by Venkies, had written to Venkies at the end of the previous year, 2011, telling them, a number of home truths about how he wanted to run the club and the direction he wanted to go in various commercial ways, but also crucially advising them that he thought Steve Keane was the wrong man to be in charge of the football club that he was running, i.e. he advised Venkies that they should uh, basically sack Steve Keane. And this had been written at the end of 2011, and I came into possession of this document in 2012. As I said, it came from a confidential source and it definitely didn't come from Paul Hunt obviously it wouldn't have come from Paul Hunt it wouldn't be in his interests but I wrote a story about this letter saying things are so chaotic now in the summer of 2012 that even Paul Hunt the chief executive was telling the owners six months ago that things needed to be done differently and the owner's reaction to me writing a story about this letter was to sack Paul Hunt claiming to people that he must have leaked me the letter, which uh, wasn't true. Now, again, eight years on now, it seems bizarre that this was such a huge story, but this was an absolutely massive story on the day it happened. I mean, it was on the BBC News, as in not just sports news, but it was on the news. Blackburn Rovers have sacked Paul Hunt, the chief executive, after... So it's just kind of like a comedy of errors at that point. Yeah, and, and it, it was ridiculous because I published this letter on Sporting Intelligence. It was just enormous. And I, I was on a train that day as the news broke from London to Scotland, And I got a phone call from the BBC after this story had been published on Sporting Intelligence and Hunt was sacked a few hours later. And the BBC said, can you come on telly live now and talk about this letter? Because Venkies have sacked him because, you know, he apparently leaked it to you. So I said, well, I'm on a train and and obviously telephone signals terrible. And they said, well, if you can, we'll, we'll put you live on air. So I said, okay, well, if you want to take a risk with the signal. So I went and stood sort of between the carriages on this Virgin Pendolino. I saw it later. They put, you know, put my photo up on the screen and had me live from in between carriages on a Virgin train asking me on air about, 
you know, the provenance of this letter. And so, um, you know, I told uh, Carthy Nana Seagram was, was the sports news person on the, on the bulletin. And I said, Carthy, look, I'm a journalist. I'm not going to reveal my sources. But what I can tell you categorically is that Paul Hunt did not leak me that letter. And if thank you sacks Paul Hunt for leaking me the letter, then they've got the wrong person. It's that simple. They've made a terrible error. And then when I got I got back later that night and I looked on the BBC website and it was just the most bizarre thing. Like leading the BBC website was this headline, Paul Hunt didn't leak the letter, colon, Harris. And it's like Nick Harris, sporting intelligence editor, you know, says Paul Hunt didn't leak him the letter. And there's this video clip of me, you know, talking live to BBC. It was that, it was that sort of farcical, chaotic sort of time that this was getting live onto BBC television and the editor of a sports website was being interviewed about whether a, a chief executive most people had never heard of had or hadn't leaked a letter about them. Uh, in terms of the quest for like more information and, and news ultimately and how much confusion there probably was around the club in that news outlets needed to kind of get some sort of narrative on it because clearly it was, you know, it's a bit of a circus at Blackburn. At that well, time. yeah, I mean, it was a big story. Suddenly it's revealed that the bloke they charged with running the club told them six months ago they need to sack Steve Keane and run the club in a different way and they have obviously ignored him so again it is evidence that the bloke they hired they're not even sort of letting him run the football yeah. club still Has you ever heard of Shebby Singh? Well, uh, I can't say I'm familiar with his work <laughs> I think he was like some sort of Malaysian defender or something turned TV pundit from a Blackburn fan's perspective he suddenly became like one of these figureheads from yeah about 2012-13 season onwards it was like this guy was running the club. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, who's Shebby Singh? Like, right. what, what is he actually doing? Because he he's uh, probably Nick, and you may know him better than me, but it seems, seems fair to say he's a bit of an eccentric. Again, quite like, you know, arrogant, I think, in many ways and really seemed to be calling the shots. Tell us about the Shebby Singh, Paul Agnew era and sort of how mad that was. So they've been relegated to the championship and Shebby Singh was a former footballer. He'd played his career in Malaysia and then he turned into a TV pundit. I'd, he'd sort of be a... A Malaysian Robbie Savage, someone with a bit of you know spark, spark and personality, <laughs> yeah. a man, a man of opinions, shall we say, <laughs> and and not afraid to air them, and sort of a bit of a Marmite character, but you know a former footballer and a nice guy. Suddenly, it's announced that he is now Venki's global football advisor, and he turns up at Blackburn, effectively thinking that he is now in day to day charge of running the football club. But at the same time, there's another guy who'd been at Blackburn for 16 years in various positions, including head of communications, basically press officer, Paul Agnew. He, at the same time, had spent time, you know, giving Venkis advice and flying back and forward to Pune to speak to them. So they made him, at the same time, director of football operations at the club. So they started the 2012-13 season with Shebby Singh. Malaysian TV pundit and Paul Agnew, press, former press officer, both thinking that they were running the football club. What ensued was absolute chaos because I think that season they might have had five managers, including interims. They had Eric Black, they had Michael Appleton, Gary Bowyer. Well, Appleton um, Appleton was the second shortest serving club manager with 67 days. Well, I feel just, like even with those managers, though, correct me if I'm wrong, but like they were sort of like, it was that era of like young managers with maybe a bit of potential, certainly more potential than Steve Keane. Yeah. Yeah. But but not when they're only given fifty or sixty days to do the job, and <laughs> yeah, they've true. got and and they've got a, a former press officer and a TV pundit both thinking they're running the club, <laughs> telling different members of staff different things, and you got to the point where some staff did not know who was running the football club. One Sunday morning during that season, I won't say which one, 
But a manager at the time, the manager of Blackburn Rovers on that day, phoned me up on Sunday morning and said, Nick, who is running this football club? And I said, (laughs) you're the manager. He said, yeah, but I don't know which one of them's running the football club. That's where we were in the 2012-13 season. Even the manager of the football club didn't know who who was running it. And that, that kind of gets... Well, it doesn't get to the low point because the low point obviously then involves subsequent relegations to the third tier. And here we are 10 years after the original takeover and they're back in the championship. And and actually, uh, Bowyer ended up appointed permanently for a couple of years and brought some stability. He had a good relationship with Venkis, but eventually they sacked him. And a few managers later, we've we've had kind of ultimately no success, but a degree of stability since. And it was really those first sort of two, three years of it that it was just chaotic beyond belief. I mean, we've talked for so long, just about a basically two and a half year period, pretty much of just where everything, all the seams were coming undone seemingly uh, like a longer heritage of Flatburn. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's very stable now. And as we say, like, even though they were, you know, pretty misinformed to the Venkies and made some terrible decisions the first few years, they actually are keeping the club afloat really now. The, the money they're putting into it. Uh, you know, they've always said they're not going to leave it. You know, they're going to take the club back where they belong and I'm sure they would like to do that. And and frankly, good luck to them. I mean, it has been absolute chaos and and there's all sorts of things that football should learn about this. I t- I'm talking about institutions of football like the FA, fit and proper you know, tests, scrutiny of who is actually running football clubs if the owners themselves aren't. And and there's all sorts of debates we can have about that, but absolute chaos. And for the fans, at different points, you know, boycotts and hardly anyone in the ground and fans going to parliament to sort of, um, to lobby politicians to get involved. Jack Straw asked for uh, an inquisition, didn't he? Well, he did. I mean, I actually went to, I went to parliament with the fans at one point because they said, they said, look, Nick, you you know, we've got all this complaints and stuff, but you've been covering it. I've got the inside story. Jack Straw's going to have a audience with us in his office in, in parliament. Will you come with us? Because, you know, if he's got questions about the background, you'll be able to sort of vouch for some of it. So I did. I went to the Houses of Parliament and into Jack Straw's office, deep in the heart of, like, the Palace of Westminster. And there's me and three Rovers fans. And sort of, <laughs> we're, sort, we're, sort of, we're sort of telling Jack Straw what chaos is going on at the club and what scrutiny there should be of, of the people that are taking it there. And there was another Blackburn MP, whose name escapes me, who agreed to meet the fans. And he took us out onto the terrace at Westminster and having a pint with a Blackburn MP and three Rovers fans as they discuss the chaos of their football club. So uh, very wow. strange times. Well, what, what do you think of that, Will? The overriding thing is like coming from an outsider and I think there was a bit of naivety on my side, like thinking, blaming all the Venkies mm. for, for all the problems and it's definitely not them. Like you'd think you'd learn the mistakes maybe like in the, at one of their local clubs and learn the lessons that way. Maybe not learn the lessons at a Premier League club and then get relegated to the Championship. And you see, and, maybe. And, and this is where the investment sort of probably shouldn't have happened in the first place. They were already involved in tennis and cricket. They wanted to be involved in football and I think they were looking for maybe an Indian Super League type. You know, there was an Indian Football yeah. League. And, and if they'd invested locally... I think they were persuaded that for the global ambitions of their poultry conglomerate, the Premier League at relatively low cost would be a much bigger stage for them. And ultimately that was a pretty fateful and ultimately not great decision for them to make for them or the club. But maybe without them, Jack Walker Trust wouldn't have found a buyer. I mean, who knows now, but absolutely farcical Mm. episode. 
I mean, we wouldn't have all these wonderful stories. Just finally, Nick, if, I mean, would you speak to the Venkis again or would they speak to you? Or, I mean, when they maybe come back to the Premier League, is that something that could go full circle? I'd be quite happy to to speak to them and advise them on which players to buy. And, and uh, <laughs> um, No, I, I'd be quite happy to speak to them and I, and I can understand why they feel that, you know, they didn't want that one particular story written. And I, and I think once you've, you've upset them, you're probably on the outside for good. And that's absolutely fair enough. That's their prerogative. But, you know, I've uh, a long, over long periods of time, lots of people's perception of Venkis was that they were stupid, that they were idiotic, that they were reckless, that they didn't care. And from the point of view of the football club and setting the record straight, I've always made the point that their heart was in the right place. They were very naive yeah. and they're very badly advised. And, and they made all sorts of mistakes, which I'm sure they would agree to, but it wasn't necessarily uh, the story that everyone has believed all this time. Nick, thank you for that. And um, we've got plenty more stories to tell. Rich, do you feel better after that? It felt therapeutic. It felt like now we have know exactly what's going on at the Rovers. And I look forward to seeing what we can discuss next time. Yes, there's plenty more stories to tell. This has been Football Uncovered. If you're listening to the audio, please drop a subscription, give us a five-star rating and a review. Join us for the rest of the season where we're going to take a look at some torrid ownerships of the likes of Leeds, Liverpool, Portsmouth and my beloved Birmingham City. That could be a four-parter. Don't forget to drop us a rating and review. Follow us on Sport. Follow Nick and we'll see you soon. <laughs>